gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I am still in Maine. This is my last week here. And uh, this is, it's not the first um, per se in the sense that we've had two guests on simultaneously before, but it's pretty rare. What is a first is one of the guests is actually recording, is recording this from the backseat of an Uber, um, which I did not know was a thing, but it's a thing. And so um, I'm very excited to have. uh, two of my colleagues from AI who have one new, uh, very important book that everyone should should look at and pick up and buy and read and and underline and all the rest. It's called Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China by Michael Beckley and Hal Brands. And so since uh, I worry about people being able to distinguish the voices, I'm going to have you guys tell me who you are and and what your 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 super impressive you know, the Davoisi globalist credentials are. Um, Michael, why don't you go first? You, you teach and you're at AAI, right? Yes. Uh, thanks so much for having us, Jonah. I'm Michael Beckley. I'm a professor at Tufts University and a non-resident fellow at AAI. And most of my research has been on the U.S.-China power balance. And I'm the one in the backseat of Uber, so my sound quality, you can, you'll know my voice by the uh, terrible sound quality. And how? I am a professor at Johns Hopkins, and I'm a senior fellow at uh, AEI as well, and I write a weekly column on national security for Bloomberg Opinion. And I, I believe you're the, you hold the Kissinger chair, is that right, or something like I that? I do, that's right. I'm the Henry, Henry Kissinger chair of global affairs here. And just because just I meant to ask you this the last time, are you, would you consider yourself a Kissingerian? Well, not in sort of the, the way that I think Kissinger is often considered as sort of the, the high realist uh, approach to foreign policy. I mean, my, my views on foreign policy are much more inflected by the sense that um, regime type matters, ideology matters, and it drives a lot of the international conflict we see in the system. And so I'm not sort of strictly a Kissingerian and in that sense, um, you know, there are, there are some aspects of Kissinger's writings and his statecraft that I find very impressive and very persuasive, and other aspects that I find uh, less so. Yeah, I mean, you, but you have the I Heart Metternich T-shirt, which is really all that matters, right? Um, Absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah, um, why don't we? Since I, I I live in terror of of the Uber crashing or the con- connection going away, I'll give the first stab at. At, at this to, um, to Michael. Um, so Michael, what, what's the book about? Why'd you guys write it? Why'd you write it together? Well, it's about, uh, you know, we, it's, we always joke that it's sort of a, a new take on the old, let's all freak out about China genre. Um, we, we think people are right to worry about China, but not because it's going to inevitably become stronger and overtake the United States as a superpower, but because it's going to start becoming weaker. Uh, we argue that it's rise is ending, its economic growth rate is slowing precipitously, its population is about to age and die off in unprecedented numbers, and foreign rivals are starting to gang up against it. And so we characterize China as a peaking power rather than a rising power, and that's just a very scary possibility because it was the peaking powers in history that caused the worst 
some of the worst wars in history. You know, Germany starts World War One in large part because it thinks its its uh, expansionist dreams are going to get crushed in a Russian and French vice with a assist from Britain. Imperial Japan starts World War II in Asia in large part because it worries the United States is going to choke out its empire. So today we already see China kind of inching its way down this ugly historical path. And so, you know, while most people characterize U.S.-China competition as this hundred-year marathon where you have decades to kind of get your, your ducks in order and rally a coalition, we argue that the sharpest phase of this competition is going to be more like a 10-year sprint this decade. And so you have to actually move much faster and sort of MacGyver solutions on the fly. You don't have time to invest in long-term R&D for weapon systems or uh, technologies that may not be available for the critical battles that are likely to come this decade. Yeah, so how I, I, and you guys should always feel free to chime in uh, just without me prompting, but um, I think I asked you this because I ask everybody, every time I ever talk about China on this podcast, I ask people about this. And because, um, you know, I don't like the way people talk about the, a new Cold War if they're going to use a capital C and a capital W because it's not um, China in all sorts of ways, isn't the Soviet Union. Um, that doesn't mean it's not a, as challenging or more challenging or more complex or less, any of those kinds of things. It's just that the Soviet Union, because of its political system, its economic system, and its appeal to Western sort of, let's, we don't have to be charitable on this podcast, useful idiots, um, and its ties to sort of the international left, just had a completely different role in global affairs than, and also because it was in Europe, um, than than what China does. And so I've been struggling for a long time, and, and Mike just sort of touched on this, to come up with a better analogy. I mean, in some ways on the economic side, you can argue China's like Japan in the 80s, but Japan wasn't trying to find its place in the sun. It had tried that already. What is like the best historical analogy for what China is doing and going through? Um, is it, as Michael suggests, you know, Germany under Kaiser Wilhelm, or is it is it, is it under Frederick the Great, or what? What is your what what is the historical language we should be speaking about to make people understand what China's up to? It's it's a little bit hard to say. Not just because all historical analogies are flawed, even though a lot of them are quite helpful, but because you know we don't know how this story ends yet. And, and we know how the UK-Germany story ended. We know how the U.S.-Japan story ended in the 1930s and then again in the 1980s and, and so on and so forth. But since we don't know entirely where this one is going yet, my hunch is that our sense of which analogies fit best will change over time. I think there are a lot of similarities to the UK-Germany relationship uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, you know, you had a, a, a liberal superpower of the day uh, going up against an autocratic land power that had developed aspirations to uh, global sea power as well. And a further way in which the analogy fits is that there was a much higher degree of economic interdependence between London and Berlin, say in 1913, than there was between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in 1947. It was a different type of economic interdependence than the U.S. and China have today because while we often refer to that earlier era as kind of the first modern era of globalization, 
you didn't quite have the same globalization of production in the way that you've had over the past 40 years or so. So, so it was different, but there were some interesting similarities there. I think the, the Cold War is not a terrible analogy either, as, as long as you keep in mind what, what you said here and what I argued in a previous book, which was that don't think of it as you know Cold War, capital C, capital W, but, but if you think of it in, in a lowercase sense as kind of a Cold War and the way that Cold Wars have occurred throughout history, when you have conflicting interests between great powers that are trying to achieve their objectives at the expense of each other, but aren't really desirous of, of going to war immediately, that's something that happens a lot. And so we can learn um, from the U.S.-Soviet Cold War about uh, aspects of long-term competition that may be useful in this context. And, and so this is all a long way of saying that there's no one perfect historical analogy, but there are historical analogies, as Mike pointed out as well, that illuminate particular aspects of the U.S.-China relationship. And that's what we're trying to get at in this book. So, so you guys argue that, as, as Mike put it, that, that it's China is not going to overtake us, that in fact it's peaking. Explain what peaking means versus, uh, I don't know, what, what, what's the alternative? Ascending, surpassing, um, uh, you know, transcending. <laughs> you know, what, what does peaking mean in the sort of realpolitik sense that you guys mean it? Peaking means you're no longer growing like gangbusters way faster than all your rival powers, but you haven't yet started to decline. In fact, you still may be sort of rising uh, in, in relative terms, but not at the same rate. And you're looking ahead and you're starting to see headwinds that are both likely to drag down your economic growth rate as well as just more strategic pushback. You can see your rivals starting to circle their wagons um, and, and build a ring of fire around you. And so it's just this fear that uh, from a growth perspective, your best days are behind you and that your strategic situation is likely to deteriorate. And so you're going to have a, you may have a window of opportunity to uh, score near-term victories. If you move hard, that could alter those long-term trends, or you may have a possibility of accomplishing long-standing national aims before that period of decline sets in. Um, or you may just freak out and say, you know what, we just need to beat back these rivals. We're not sure how this is going to end, but we do know it's going to get very bad for us, you know, five, 10 years from now. And so we have to move aggressively in the short term. So it's the, it's the exhilarating rise followed by the fear of a decline coming um, in, in the near future. And that's what tends to motivate these countries to move more aggressively in the short term. And, and if I could just add to what Mike said, I think something that's really important to keep in mind is that countries don't rise, decline, or peak equally in every dimension at, at once, right? Countries can be rising and falling at the same time. So to, to give a historical example of this, in the 1970s, the Soviet Union had already started to decline economically vis-a-vis -vis the United States. It, it hits the peak of its GDP relative to the United States in 1970 or thereabouts and declines after that. But its military power grew like gangbusters during the 70s. And so it was still rising in a military sense. And so the point that we make about China isn't that all dimensions of Chinese power are about to fall off a cliff. What we say is that China's best days economically are behind it, but what's really worrying is that its military power continues to grow quite rapidly. 
And, and that tends to be the most dangerous combination. When, when countries are losing confidence that they can overtake their rivals peacefully, but are still developing the capabilities that could allow them to shatter the existing order by force, that has typically been a recipe for real trouble. And that's the sort of scenario we see emerging with China today. So in the last 10 years, I mean, obviously you guys know this so much better than I do, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems in the last 10, maybe even 20 years, China has moved steadily more and more to sort of a nationalist pose, right? That, um, which I would argue is endemic to all socialist communist systems. They all fall back on nationalism because nationalism does more to fill up the holes in people's souls than Marxist-Leninist doctrine. So, you know, the Soviet Union by the 1930s is doing, um, you know, great patriotic, you know, uh, efforts and talking about Mother Russia and obviously World War II, it goes all in on nationalism and the same thing with Castro and all these others. But I, I guess the question I have about this is how much of China's turn to nationalism is a deliberate policy where the regime sees that the economic stuff is starting to go down. And so the implicit bargain that the CCP had with the people was, you guys shut up about all this democracy and civil liberty stuff because we're going to make you rich. When, they, when the government stops to can see on the horizon it being unable to keep fulfilling that end of the bargain, they got to replace it, it with something else, sort of a bread and circuses, let's keep them happy with nationalism stuff. How much of that is a policy uh, endeavor and how much of it is just sort of something that naturally comes once your population's basic needs are fulfilled they start looking more aspirationally for more respect because i could see it going both ways in the rise of germany i can see it going both ways in, in the rise of a lot of places i think it's a mix of both in the sense that you know typically when a country's power grows and it becomes more capable of achieving big things on the international stage you start to get a sense of, of national pride, of national destiny, um, uh, a willingness to engage in aggrandizement that may not have been there before simply because the capabilities weren't there before. And, and so to some extent, this is just kind of like an old story that is occurring again in the Chinese case. But, but I think that there also are elements of deliberate choice here. And, and so after Tiananmen Square in 1989, um, Chinese leaders recognize that kind of the old socialist slogans don't really do it anymore in terms of maintaining the legitimacy of the regime. And, and so the legitimacy of the regime came to rest really on two fundamental pillars. One was economic prosperity, right? And, and so the, the social contract was you won't get any real political rights, but you'll be far better off than uh, your parents or your grandparents were. And so you should support the regime for that reason. And a lot of Chinese people were willing to, to take that bargain, which is not entirely surprising when you think about how tumultuous and terrible the history of China had been for you know at least half a century, if not more, before that. But the other pillar was, was nationalism. And it was, it was much more of a sort of an explicit appeal to Chinese greatness and to uh, the idea of sort of returning China to where it had been in an earlier period before it went through the century of humiliation and became weak and divided. And if you think of those two things as existing in kind of an equilibrium, well, it makes sense that as one of the pillars becomes weaker, you lean harder 
on the other pillar. And I think that's exactly what's happened. And I, I think there's been a lot of state-sponsored efforts to dial that up in recent years. And it's not just an emphasis on China and its national greatness. It's on anti-Japanese sentiment, anti-American sentiment, and really playing on the century of humiliation when China was ripped apart by foreign imperialists, because for the Chinese Communist Party, that's their claim to fame. You know, they say, we are the ones that ended the century of humiliation. We unified the country, and now we're going to make it great again. So by emphasizing how bad China was before the Chinese Communist Party came around, and then talking about what they're going to do to uh, beat back these foreign rivals, it, it becomes a powerful message for them to try to sell to the Chinese people. So I'm, um, I heard you guys on a, on a, another podcast when I was, for this and the issue of the bet that we made in the 1990s by letting China into the global order and the bet was, was that you know the sort of classic uh, you know first wealth then rights the middle class will demand its day in the sun going back to the French Revolution that's generally been the way you get um, liberal democracy and that it hasn't worked in China and I agree it hasn't worked in China. Um, at the same time, don't you still have to put a yet at the end of that sentence? I mean, do you think it's a foregone conclusion that China will not eventually become a democracy? I'm not trying to go all Fukuyama on you guys here, but do you think it's, it's, it's that, that this leopard can't change its spots and that e even if the communist party goes away, what replaces it will also be illiberal or undemocratic. Is it, is that bet just been proven wrong and, and settled or is it something that there's yet reason to have hope? I think it's probably fair to say that it'll be difficult for the communist party to hold this thing together forever. Um, and in many ways, the increasingly repressive nature of the system over the past 10 to 15 years is in some ways a response to the very formula that American policymakers had in mind in the late 80s and early 90s when they were crafting this engagement strategy. I, I think that Chinese leaders realized that uh, there were more stresses on the system than there had been in the past, in part because the population had become more prosperous, it had become more exposed to the outside world. And so part of the crackdown that you've seen in recent years is an effort to make sure that those subversive influences don't take the CCP down. Uh, Chinese leaders live in constant fear of, of internal upheaval and, and subversion and, and revolution. In terms of what might come next, it's, it, it's really hard to say, right? And so let's just kind of think about what happens after Xi Jinping, right? And, and so at some point in the next decade and a half, probably Xi Jinping is going to pass from the scene and, and what will come after him. There are a variety of scenarios. Some of them are relatively reassuring and others are not. So you, you could get, you know, to go back to the Cold War analogy, you could get the Chinese Gorbachev, right? And so somebody who comes into power saying, look, we've really kind of run the system off the rails over the past 20 years. We're going to need economic reform to get the economy going again. We're going to need political reform in order to create space for economic reform, right? That was kind of the old relationship between perestroika and glasnost as well. And so you get a move towards some form of reform and liberalization in China 
Whether that leads to electoral democracy or not is, is hard to say. But that may or may not be the most likely scenario. You, you could get, uh, after she goes down or passes from the scene in some other way, a more radical nationalist regime. You could get a military regime, right? You could essentially have the hardliners take over after Xi Jinping leaves, in part because she has so messed with the succession processes that um, the groups that are best organized, which would tend to be those coming from the military or the security services, will be best placed to grab power once he's no longer around. I, I think that sort of the equilibrium that China has achieved is, is going to be unstable politically over the long run. But whether that leads to democracy or not, I, I think is kind of anybody's guess. PRC, first of all, has only had one completely formalized and orderly transfer of power. And that's when Xi Jinping himself took office in late 2012. Uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping stuck around for several years after he retired in 1989 and was pulling strings, even though his only official title was chairman of the Chinese Bridge Plane Association. Uh, Jiang Zemin gave up the presidency and the general secretaryship to Hu Jintao in 2002, but he clung to the uh, head of the Central Military Commission um, until 2004. That would be sort of like if you know Biden is president, but Trump is still commander in chief <laughs> for a couple of years. Um, and, what could go and, wrong? Now, and what could possibly go wrong, right? And so there's clearly, you know, clearly politics in, in China is very rough and tumble. Um, and, you know, Xi Jinping has obliterated what few norms of succession there were before. And, you know, even the pre-PRC period gives even less reason for comfort. I mean, China has basically only been unified under a, a pretty strong authoritarian state. And there's been interesting studies showing that literally half of the emperors of China across 40-something dynasties uh, were either killed, exiled, imprisoned, or, or compelled to commit suicide. So um, the bottom line is, you know, anything is possible. Chaos is often the norm. And so I just think there's, there's no historical precedent for a stable transition to democracy, especially given that the CCP has built the most powerful surveillance and repression system the world has ever seen. I don't know where you guys see yourselves vis-a-vis -vis the book, you know, Why Nations Fail, the Asimolo, I can never pronounce his name, Darren Asimologu, Moglu. Asimoglu, I think. is uh, Yeah, and, and James Robinson. And I, I, there are parts about it I really like, there are parts about it I don't, but like one of the things that I think they're very good on is explaining why um, the lack of nimble, I can't remember their exact terminology, but the lack of nimble, transparent, inst stable institutions becomes a real hindrance to steady-state economic growth and prosperity. Um, um, you, you, know, you mentioned, I mean, this, was, this is one of the reasons you got perestroika, right? It was that you needed, the, the lack of the ability to put it bluntly, the lack of free speech and accountability that comes with free speech and, um, and transparent institutions with checks and balances, eventually the, the inability to have, the lack of that stuff makes a modern economy almost impossible. And, you know, the inability of workers to call out on safe practices, the inability of managers to tell the truth to their bosses about what's going on because there are political imperatives rather than economic and market forces the inability to get price signal, rational price signals that tell you what practices and products work and which ones don't, eventually that all falls apart. China seems to have beaten that 
because they bought into this sort of state capitalism model to have their growth under under Ding. But isn't it possible that the reason why they're peaking is that much like the Soviet Union, you get a lot of return out of heavy industry industrialization, moving from sort of oxen cart stuff. Um, you can't get to a sustainable first world economy with the kind of social political um, police state that they have. Is how, what is the role of that in the fact that they're peaking, or is it is it completely unrelated to that? It's not unrelated. I, I mean, I think that one thing that the Chinese government discovered kind of in the early 2000s was basically the issue that Gorbachev ran up against in like 86, 87, which is that there, there comes a point at which economic reform cannot proceed further without taking on some of the entrenched features of an autocratic system, right? And you talked about a, a number of them. In China's case, it might have been, you know, really well-connected state-owned enterprises that were sucking up the majority of the available credit through political connections rather than economic merit. And, and so when I referred to the Chinese system as an unstable equilibrium a minute ago, this is, this is kind of what I was talking about, right? Because China managed to be autocratic, relatively meritocratic, uh, and well, relatively well-run for about 30 years. But I think it's an open question whether you can sustain that indefinitely if you are not you know, a city-state like Singapore, if you are a vast Eurasian behemoth and, and the way that China is. And I think Chinese leaders came to a decision point where they basically either had to continue with economic reform, which meant pursuing or allowing a certain liberalization of the political system, or they could clamp down politically, but that meant derailing the reform program. And they, they pretty clearly chose the latter course even before Xi Jinping had come to power. And Xi Jinping has tripled down on, on that bet. And, and so all of the things you see him doing, going after the tech sector, uh, insisting that you know, enterprises of, of any size basically have Communist Party apparatchiks uh, you know, in the leadership group and so on and so forth, that's all part of the same process. He has decided that he's going to prioritize the political authority of the CCP and his own personal political authority even if that means a reduction in the previously breakneck growth that had been the CCP's claim to fame. You know, I, I think, um, on, on the other hand, you know, they, they, they can't really rely just on free markets either. And they, they discovered this in the early 2000s where, yes, their economy was growing and they were these, this big export platform, but they actually had a series of meetings among top-level officials where they, they were, there was a lot of doom and gloom because they felt like their companies had become cogs in a set of supply chains that were still dominated by the United States, Europe, and Japan, and that they were forever going to be stuck doing sort of the low-value activities while all these multinational companies were exploiting cheap Chinese labor and then taking the money they saved and pumping it into R&D so they could stay further ahead of China. And so that's when you get the impetus. You know, in 2006, you have this medium and long-term science and engineering plan that starts where you start seeing more industrial policy come to the fore. And then that takes off really after the 2008 financial crisis, where China's like, we have to take a much more aggressive hand. And, and it explodes after 2014 with these governmental guidance funds, where they pick strategic industries and have just pumped insane amounts of money. There was a recent study by CSIS that shows that China spends more than twice as much as a share of its economy on industrial policy 
than any other country and more than twice as much in absolute terms as the United States. And so this is going to be a giant experiment. We're already kind of getting initial inklings of whether this will work. There, there was a recent, uh, so China just launched a massive corruption investigation into its semiconductor industry because they spent $100 billion trying to build a microchip industry. And their, their semiconductor chips are basically as, as sophisticated as a flip phone. And so now Xi Jinping is really pissed off. And you know, as soon as they announced that plan, 15,000 new so-called semiconductor companies suddenly emerged in China you know, to get a piece of the, uh, of the patronage. Um, and so it doesn't look like it's going particularly well. But I think one X factor that we just don't know is whether new technologies that rely more on just tons of data could actually give an authoritarian regime like China a leg up in a way that confounds a lot of our academic theories about why you know authoritarian governments inevitably hit um, diminishing returns and can't innovate. Because if they can just you know violate the privacy, not just of Chinese citizens, but of all the countries around the world where they've set up, uh, you know, uh, they've laid down fiber optic cables and you know have access to the data. Um, that they could really train powerful algorithms that could lead to you know advances in artificial intelligence. I'm still I'm skeptical of that, but that's that's an X factor just because we don't know because the technologies are so new. Yeah, no, I think that's entirely fair. I mean, you you think about I was thinking about this in terms of the you know the command and control stuff can work in the the sort of analog world for only so long before it runs into problems. At least that's what history has showed, right? You know, but like. We just don't know about the what the digital and AI revolutions are going to do about this stuff. And I'd like to think that human desire for freedom will triumph over those things too, but there's no reason to be confident about that. There's a theory that um, a lot of the technologies that Mike mentioned, AI, uh, big data, uh, those sorts of things, they basically lower the costs of repression. They lower the economic costs of repression for uh, authoritarian regimes. And, and so you can do with fewer people the amount of uh, monitoring of society that, that would have required a lot more back in the day. You, you can use a social credit system like China has developed to just kind of nudge people into political compliance and not challenging the system as opposed to having to engage in, in beatings and mass executions and all right. of the terrible things that previous regimes did. Now, the reason I say it's a theory is because it, it hasn't been proven, right? There are, there are some reasons to think that the, the logic is compelling, but if you look at what's happening in Western China, for instance, it, it tends actually to be a mix of the two. You get sort of very high-tech uh, repression on the one hand with very old-fashioned you know, concentration camps and checkpoints on the other end. So, so how this plays out, I, I think remains to be seen, but there's certainly the possibility that if new technologies do lower the cost of repression for authoritarian regimes, they would shift the way, they would shift the balance of power between autocracy and democracies in a way that would be new for those of us who have mostly studied the 20th century, for instance. Although it's ironic, you know, you think about it, there have been plenty of times in the past where we thought technology was obviously on the side of authoritarianism and totalitarianism. I mean, that's the whole point of 1984, right? It's the whole idea of the panopticon and all of these kinds of things. And, um, and the truth has always been that there have been periods where it has been on the side of authoritarianism and totalitarianism. And then it's also, there have been times when it has been on the side of freedom. I mean, I, the Soviet Union had to lock up its copy machines at night because they couldn't trust people to make copies. You can't have a modern economy if you can't even make photocopies of things. 
So let's assume you're right. And I, 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 on these debates, I tend to be on your side of this and that I, I, I've, I've never thought that it was a serious, I don't want to say that wasn't a serious thing. I've never been particularly convinced that China was going to overtake us over the long haul for the, some of the reasons that we've been discussing. But it kind of doesn't matter in the near term. We still got to deal with where China is right now. So what do we do? What do you think we should be doing about China as a matter of foreign policy, right? Well, I think our, our policy prescriptions flow from our diagnosis. So first of all, time is short. So you need to move fast and use the tools and partners that you have on hand now rather than those you might like to have in 10 or 20 years with a bunch of R&D. And we, we compare the situation loosely to the early Cold War where, you know, then many American policymakers were fairly confident that communism was eventually going to be bankrupt. But they worried that it was on the march in the short term, just because you had the Soviet military deployed across a shattered Eurasia and communism was gaining popularity even in Western Europe. And so, um, you know, Hal has done great, great research, basically showing things that, you know, like the Marshall Plan and NATO that we think of as these brilliant long term schemes to win the Cold War were sort of actually slapped together in a matter of weeks and months and evolved in response to emerging crises. So we, we advocate something similar today, a sort of Operation Warp Speed in the Taiwan Strait to just get as many sensors and shooters out there to lay down a high-tech minefield around the area so that an invasion or a blockade just looks like it would be an incredibly difficult slog for China and hopefully deter China from doing that in the first place. And we also, this, this short-term rush also comes into play economically um, because we see China trying to monopolize what the Chinese call choke points in the global economy, things that people can't live without, whether it's high-end stuff like computer chips or PPE, you know, medical stuff that you need in a pandemic or rare earths or telecommunications or loans. And they're trying to lord that over other countries um, and, and implement sanctions for the most tiny of offenses, let alone things that actually affect China's national power. So we, we feel that the United States and its allies need to get together very quickly to form a sort of loose economic block, probably anchored around the G7 and then with a rotating cast of other partners to just develop multilateral alternatives to Chinese goods, services, loans, um, so that countries, so basically to prevent the Amazon effect, you know, to prevent China from monopolizing key parts of the global economy and then using that to bend the arc of uh, global development in an authoritarian direction, to expand its territory, to expand its sphere of influence. Um, and so we see these as sort of blunting tactics in the short term. Um, and then just to get us to the long game. And then the second, a second lesson we derive is just not to overreach because those long-term trends are favorable. You don't necessarily need to oppose, play whack-a-mole and oppose every single assertion of Chinese influence everywhere. You know, if China wants to build some tunnels or roads or hospitals in, in developing countries, that may not be something the United States should oppose. It might even be something the United States should encourage. Uh, if China wants to spend a bunch of money on aircraft carriers that are going to be missile magnets for uh, the U.S. Navy, then that's probably better than them arming up on uh, advanced missiles of their own or, or cyber capabilities um, that could really decimate the U.S. fleet. So, uh, you know, it's just kind of picking your battles, but then being very quick about trying to plug holes in what we see as a leaky bucket right now in terms of our deterrent barrier uh, towards China. I just maybe one one thing to add. I mean, on the I think the conceptual underpinning of all the stuff that that Mike talked about is that 
if you are fairly confident that the long-term trends are going to be on your side, and, and we are, then what you got to do is prevent the other guy from making short-term moves that could fundamentally shift the longer-term course of events, right? And so this is why Taiwan is, is so important. Chinese leaders can tell themselves a story where if they manage to grab Taiwan, it breaks the barrier of U.S. allies and partners running up and down the first island chain in the Western Pacific. It makes the Philippines and parts of Japan indefensible. It basically gives China an advantage throughout this critical region and casts such doubt on American staying power that other countries decide they've got to come to terms with, with China. Would that actually happen? It, it might, right? Or you might wake up with a Japan with 60 nuclear weapons the next day or, or something like that. But it's, it's an example of a place where China can, can tell itself a story that if we make this move now, we can stave off this strategic encirclement that's happening and, and shift the balance of power in our favor. And, and so the United States has to focus very uh, intensively on those areas and prevent China from basically making near-term moves that have dramatic long-term effects. I was going to, my next question was going to be, but I think you just answered it. What do you say to like the nor like Mike, you're about to get on a plane, which is why you did this thing from Uber. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you sit next to someone who says, what do you do? And he says, well, I'm a foreign policy guy, blah, 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 blah. And, and he says, let me ask you a question. Why do we care about whether China controls Taiwan or not? What is your answer in sort of layman terms to that question? That is a very fair question, uh, just given, you know, uh, Trump, you know, would point at the end of his Sharpie and say, this is Taiwan, and then point to the, the big desk in the old office and say, this is China. And if uh, China invades Taiwan, there's not an effing thing we can do about it. So it's a, it's a completely fair question. Um, you know, I think, first of all, there, aside from the fact that Taiwan is a flourishing democracy with 23 million people, the vast majority of whom absolutely don't want to be swallowed by a, a genocidal dictatorship. Uh, set that set the moral case aside. Um, there's been a lot of great studies recently just showing the strategic importance of Taiwan. I think pound for pound, Taiwan is the most strategically vital area on the planet because it's the epicenter of the U.S.-China rivalry. It sits at the crossroads of the East and South China Seas, which are themselves the crossroads between the Pacific and Indian Ocean, something like 40% of global trade flows through there. And from a military perspective, you know, it's called an unsinkable aircraft carrier for a reason. And as Hal just mentioned, it's right in the middle of that first island chain. If China takes that over, they not only blast a hole right through the middle of the chain, but they also, uh, you know, now have a launching pad for potential aggression against other countries. You know, Japan j relies just as much on these waterways as China does. And Japan has recently said, if China attacks Taiwan, that's a dire threat to our own interests because we're going to be next. We have small islands that are within a few hundred miles of Taiwan, and then it's obviously a staging location for further aggression. And so if you think that revanchist, revisionist powers don't get satisfied when you lop off a little bit of territory and feed it to them, that they just get hungrier, then you have to make a stand where you can and, uh, you know, China has said explicitly for many decades that its territorial claims don't end with Taiwan. In some ways, they sort of begin with Taiwan. You know, they, the, the territorial claims encompass 80 percent of the East and South China Seas, big chunks of India. Um, and China also just has ambitions to be the most powerful country in the world. So the idea that it would stop once it is consolidated control over Taiwan um, would be a big gamble, I think. Um, there's also just the diplomatic factors here. You know, the United States 
isn't just trying to compete with China. It's trying to undergird a system of alliances that has really pacified big parts of the globe. Obviously, NATO, uh, the U.S.-Japan alliance has not just freed those countries from conflict, but also their neighbors. You know, I think a big reason why interstate warfare has gone down dramatically since 1945 is not just because there's nuclear weapons. It's because the United States pacified Germany, Japan, and a bunch of other countries that used to tear each other apart. And if you just, if, if the world's most powerful democracy sits on its hands while the Chinese Communist Party crushes the only Chinese democracy, I just think it's going to be very hard to have any credibility as a security guarantor going forward. And as Hal said, I mean, that can manifest in many different ways. It could manifest in a Japanese nuclear arsenal the next day. It could manifest in just countries saying, okay, we can't rely on Uncle Sam anymore. We have to build up our militaries and we're in a much darker uh, world. There's also just the economic effects of a Chinese conquest of, of Taiwan. You know, Taiwan is a top 20 economy and it punches way above its weight because it makes, you know, 70% of the microchips that people use and 92% of the most advanced chips. I mean, the only reason I'm able to participate in this podcast right now is because of, you know, computer chips that were fabricated in Taiwan. So, um, you know, if, if, if Taiwan goes down, uh, at minimum, you're going to have the collapse of all of these global technology supply chains. And there's going to be a bunch of knock-on effects from the closure of those sea lanes, which will turn into shooting galleries. So, you know, there's been interesting studies that basically show a, a U.S. and Chinese economies take a massive hit um, and as a result, you end up probably a global depression is all but guaranteed. So there's a lot of reasons. It's a fair question. Um, you'd be risking nuclear conflict uh, with China. But at the same time, there are lots of risks of inaction, too, if the United States just sits by and lets uh, China have its way with Taiwan. I particularly like that you included among global thermonuclear war, uh, international chaos and economic depression, the possibility that you would not be able to participate in this podcast as one of the reasons why we oh, need no. to protect first, Taiwan. <laughs> first, first, first and foremost, not one, first and foremost, that goes without saying. You got to make foreign policy tangible for Americans. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's the making the remnant possible is the new 5440 or fight. Um, so, um, so, uh, you know, give me a, I, I, you know, you guys aren't here for rank punditry, but um, give me your assessment about how you think both the Trump and Biden administrations, and you can go back further if you like, have, have dealt with China. I mean, I, I do think, just to put my cards on the table, I'm not, I think everyone here probably knows I'm not a huge Trump fan, but I do think the reorientation towards a more hawkish posture with China was a positive one. I think it could have been handled better. Um, but, uh, you know, how, how how do you grade both administrations and what, what are like the first tangible things you'd like to see Biden or, or the next president do vis-a-vis China? So I think the answer I give is that the direction of travel has generally been the correct one, but the speed of travel has been horribly inadequate to the task. And that, that's not a partisan critique. I think it, you can say that about both of the last two administrations. You can include the Obama administration in that and perhaps even the Bush 43 administration as well. And so there is um, you know, pretty strong bipartisan consensus that the era of engagement with China is over and the United States needs to be moving toward the more competitive posture. You see a lot of constructive action. You see DOD increasingly orienting itself toward the challenges of maintaining 
deterrence or an effective defense in the Western Pacific. Uh, you've seen more and more movement to try to uh, multilateralize the competition with China, getting Japan on side, for instance, and, and, and determining what Japan could or would do to help us in a Taiwan conflict, similar things with Australia. You see both the Trump and the Biden administrations doing good things with groups like the Quad, which are basically, even though they don't call explicitly call themselves anti-China, it's an, it's an anti-China coalition of democracies in the Indo-Pacific uh, you see important things uh, in the realm of tech competition and, and so on and so forth. And so I don't, I don't want to gainsay any of the, the really good initiatives that have taken hold over the past five years or so. And there have been some areas where we have, I think, fought a fairly effective delaying action against some of the Chinese thrusts that we talk about. And so the U.S. campaign against Huawei, for instance, really from about 2019 up until 2021, including the, maybe up to the present, I think has been fairly effective in knocking Huawei off, off stride and, and helping to ensure that it doesn't dominate the 5G telecommunications networks of the world, particularly the advanced democracies. But there are a lot of areas where we just haven't gone remotely far enough, fast enough. And, and so I think most defense experts would tell you that the amount of progress we've made in terms of shoring up our, our no kidding military posture in the Western Pacific over the past decade has been kind of laughable. Uh, everybody has known what the answer is for at least 10 years uh, in, in terms of making the U.S. military more resilient in, in a conflict with China. And the, the actual sort of work that's been done uh, along those dimensions is, is relatively lacking. And so I think there is a growing realization now that we are running out of time before a big crisis of some sort or another hits. And, and this was one of the reasons, by the way, I, I think, why you saw such um, alarm coming out of official Washington, coming out of the Biden administration, when it became clear that the Pelosi visit to Taiwan was going to cause some sort of diplomatic military crisis in the strait, because there's a recognition that we, we are just not ready, right? We have been talking a really good game on competition with China for the past five years, but the reality of our policies in defense and, and trade and a variety of other areas has not caught up. And so it's not a matter of kind of reinventing the wheel or coming up with really smart policies from scratch. It's a matter of expediting the implementation of things that we've known are necessary for a number of years. I agree with everything Hal says. Not surprisingly, we've had sort of a mind meld for the last couple of years of working together. Um, I, you know, I think in addition, I, my, my biggest criticism of Trump was always just the unilateral, the unilateralism of the strategy. I mean, you give him a lot of credit for making competition with China more explicit. But um, one a key point we make in the book is that in order to prosecute this effectively, it, it has to be much more about shaping the system around China, which means dealing with a whole range of, of allies and partners. And obviously that was not the strong suit of the Trump administration. And on, for the Biden team, you know, in addition to just the sort of slow pace of travel, there's also been some under-resourcing. I mean, if you looked at the defense budget request that the Biden team initially put out, um, you know, it was, I don't think anywhere near the, the level you would need at a time when there's, you know, now a war going on in, in Europe that you may have to deal with. And uh, given just the pace and scale of China's own military modernization. So I think the good news is that the strategic rationale has already been sketched out. I mean, I, it, from the defense side of things, for probably 15 years, defense experts have been basically putting forward the strategy that everyone has kind of, that most people have coalesced around. 
but it's just been haltingly slow in terms of actually turning the big Pentagon ship around and getting it to you know spread out its bases, spread out its forces, rely less on big aircraft carriers, and uh, you know develop uh, use some of these anti-axis air denial capabilities back on China. I mean that just takes a lot of bureaucratic change that has been slow in coming and has been under resource. You know, one thing we didn't talk about is that there's going to be a big retirement of Reagan era warships and bombers and guided missile submarines that's actually going to even weaken the US position in Asia during the course of this decade. You know, so just things like putting off air and naval modernization for years and years and years, now the bill is finally coming due from a strategic perspective. So it just takes more urgency and more more resources. Um, and unfortunately, that hasn't been as forthcoming as we would like. So neither of you, unless I missed it, neither of you mentioned pulling out of TPP or not going into TPP or however you're supposed to phrase it. Um, I'm personally convinced that Trump didn't understand what TPP was, but um, how big a deal do you think it was that, I mean, or how big a mistake or or not do you think it was that we, we turned our back on? Yeah, it was a big one. And I was uh, sort of uh, awkwardly alluding to that, I think, in, in a reference to economic factors. Yeah. But but yeah, I mean, so this was the whole thrust of TPP was that it was meant to give countries like Vietnam uh, an alternative to economic dependence on China by tying them more closely to an economic community anchored by the United States and also anchored by Japan to a significant extent. And, uh, you know, Trump decided to pull out of it. In fairness to Trump, I struggle to find a single uh, political leader in the United States of national reputation who is making the argument for getting back into TPP, right? Clinton said she was against it during the campaign. Biden uh, has made no moves towards getting back. We've had IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, instead, which is sort of a watered-down version of of TPP that, that, that doesn't come with the expanded market access that uh, would would actually be sort of the game changer for a lot of nations uh, in the Indo-Pacific. It it bespeaks um, a larger sense that trade has become politically toxic in the United States, that there's just no constituency for these big multilateral trade deals that give other countries expanded access to the U.S. market. You know, look, I'm not a politician by trade, but I think that consensus may actually be wrong. Uh, if you look at public opinion polls, they're, they're very favorable on trade in general, and actually pretty favorable on TPP, CPTPP as it's now called, uh, in in particular. And the sort of strategic argument for joining TPP or CPTPP, it, it was there in 2015, 2016, but it was kind of vague because most Americans weren't really thinking about China as a strategic competitor. It's much more powerful now. I think the primary issue is that it would take a lot of presidential political capital to move this thing through the Congress, right? To, to get it ratified and, and signed and sealed and approved. And, you know, President Trump had no interest in that. President Biden has not had any interest in investing his own political capital in that issue. There's been some speculation, maybe you get a move into CPTPP, you know, after the midterms or in a second term or, or something like that. You know, that that's late. And uh, I don't know how likely it is, unfortunately. I have a kind of a gear change question here. Um, it's been a minor obsession of mine that. Um, 
when I, 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 I well, I'll, I'll back up. I've been writing a certain column once every couple of years for 20 years now about don't tell me this must never happen again because it's happening all the time, right? In North Korea and China, the, the whole lesson, of, you know, the Eli Wiesel sort of lesson of the Holocaust is that the civilized world can't turn a blind eye to genocide or, or mass brutality. And, and then you have Rwanda and you have North Korea and you have, and now you have what's going on with the Uyghurs. And, um, and people turn a blind eye to terrible things all the time. At the same time, in the United States, I would argue, and I don't expect you guys, ha- you don't have to agree with this part of it, but um, our comment on it, we have an almost pathological obsession with racial bigotry in this country. It is the lingua franca of almost the entire sort of high-level uh, progressive discourses. And, it would, and so much so that Democrats have to sort of frame current political arguments as fighting Jim Crow, right? I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. Meanwhile, China is a Jim Crow country. Han supremacy is a real thing. If you are not an ethnic Han Chinese, um, your ability to, to travel internally, depending on what your ethnicity is or what your region, what region you're from, your ability to travel internally, your ability to get access to good jobs and good educational tracks is severely hampered. And in some cases, you're put in concentration camps. And yet there are, there are table thumpers like me and, and also on the left and, and elsewhere who will bring this stuff up. But you, you very rarely hear policymakers talk in these strident moral terms. And when you saw like Anthony Blinken confronted, remember that Alaska summit at the beginning of the administration, the, China, the Chinese went hammer and tongs against American racism. And Blinken's response was, yes, we have our faults, but at least we're willing to address them or something like that. Whereas like in an earlier time, the sort of Scoop Jackson kind of Democrats and the neocon kind of Republicans would have said, how dare you? <laughs> you know, look at your country, look what you're doing. And you are, you're coming at us with this sort of moral criticism. How come the, that language of morality and, and foreign policy seems except at the fringes where it's used basically by demagogues. Um, uh, how come that's not more mainstream in our discourse about this? How is it that uh, it's sort of getting back to Kissinger, we do this much more about sort of economic power and prestige and not about we're the good guys and they're the bad guys? I think there's, there's probably a handful of reasons for this. I mean, one, one reason is that as a competitor, China's a little bit hard to wrap, it, wrap your head around it, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not... It's not the same as the Soviet Union. It's it's not the same as as Nazi Germany, even though it has lots of neo totalitarian tendencies and does terrible terrible things. And and remember that for twenty five years after the Cold War, really forty years, if you go back to the beginning of the reform and an opening period, you know Americans have been given to think about China at, not as sort of this horrible autocratic quasi-totalitarian system, but as this modernizing country that was going to become more like us over time, right? And so there's there's probably a little bit of a hangover there. I, I think there's probably a bit of a hangover, frankly, from, from Iraq and Afghanistan and, and the war on terror. And, and so there, there were very pronounced good versus evil themes uh, in the early 2000s surrounding uh, those particular interventions, which turned out to be 
you know, unpopular among large swaths of the American population. So I think you're getting blowback against that. There is also this longer and kind of unfortunate American tradition, though, which is not unique to either side of the political spectrum to be much more critical of our own flaws than we are of the other side's flaws, right? And, and so you, you could see this um, uh, on the left in dealing with the Soviet Union in the 1930s and 1940s. You sometimes see it on the right now in dealing with Russia. And, you know, like, you know, Russia is now the paragon of traditional values in the world and all of this. Nonsense. Or Hungary, but same point. Or, yeah. or, or Hungary, <laughs> right? And, and so there, there is part of this longer tradition. The, the good part of that tradition is the tradition that says we're going to focus more on our own flaws because we have it on our power to address those flaws. And, and self-criticism is an admirable tendency in a democracy. The, the bad part of that tradition is the part that says, you know, our, our society is unredeemable, whereas these other societies, which are like no kidding dictatorships, have a moral leg up on us somehow. So I'm half Japanese and uh, my, my Japanese family was interned in World War II and three of uh, my grandma's brothers fought in the uh, 442nd Infantry and one's killed in action, another gets a Purple Heart. And when they came back, you know, they still encountered horrible racism, but their, their attitude was not to sort of wallow in victimhood, but sort of say, I'm going to show you that I am a full-fledged citizen of this country. I'm going to serve this country and I'm going to recognize the greater evil abroad, even as we confront horrible things going on here domestically. And so I think that's maybe the attitude that ideally we, we could get to where it's like, look, we can recognize our problems, but we don't spend so much time criticizing ourselves that we become blind to, as Hal said, the no kidding dictatorships that, you know, are engaged in genocide right now in their own countries. Um, and I also, I hope that there's some kind of silver lining because, you know, one thing that geopolitical competition can sometimes do is force you to improve your country in ways that you should do anyway. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so during the Cold War, you know, in order to not get those same kind of jibes that we got just from the Chinese officials recently from the Soviets, we had to improve our civil rights record here at home. And at the same time, in doing so, we could then highlight the abuses that were going on within the Soviet empire. And so I would hope that we could do something similar today where really showing what China is up to and, and all of the evil authoritarian things that are going on over there can not only rally Americans together at home, but also cause them to fix a lot of the problems here rather than just, you know, taking the, the attitude of this country, the United States is the problem. Um, and can never be redeemed and is evil and should just stop doing stuff around the world because it's such a bad actor. Um, so that's obviously the kind of transition we're going to make. I, I have no confidence that we're going to get there, um, but that's, <laughs> that's sort of the hope. Um, that, yeah. All right. So we, um, we've hit the hour mark and I promise to do this on a somewhat timely basis. Uh, I want to thank you guys so much for doing this. The book again is Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China by Hal Brands and Michael Beckley. Uh, thank you both very much for doing this. Thanks, Jonah. Thank you so much. Okay, so uh, uh, Mike and Hal have uh, left the studio. I apologize for some of Mike's audio. Uh, we were supposed to record this like two weeks ago, and then I had this big conflict and couldn't do it. And so we rescheduled to today, and then he got noticed that expect massive delays at the airport. So he had to leave earlier for 
flight. And so every now and then, if you hear that door, those door closing chimes in the background, that's not Caleb getting cute about, you know, trying to editorialize in some way. It's just literally the background noise. But if you didn't hear it, great. Um, that means Caleb's doing his job of getting that stuff out of there. So with that, uh, uh, thanks for tuning in. This Again, this is my um, last uh, week up here in Maine. Um, although I'm not exactly sure what day next week we're coming back. I was going to s- tell you some stories, but I'll save it for the solo pod. And um, so thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Yeah.